Post Reports is sponsored by the Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. The Asset tells the story of Donald Trump and Russia. It's about the role of a hostile foreign government in the election of the President of the United States. From the newsroom of the Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, June 13th. Today, how Bernie Sanders became mayor of Burlington, why Kim Jong-un has defied expectations in North Korea, and protests in Hong Kong. Bernie Sanders, this guy who sounds like a Brooklyn guy through and through, how does he wind up in Vermont? A lot of Vermonters ask themselves that same question. This is Mark Fisher. I'm senior editor at The Washington Post. And recently, Mark has been looking into Senator Bernie Sanders' early years in Vermont, and specifically his four terms as mayor of Burlington. Because that remains Sanders' only experience in executive office. And Mark figured that that experience could tell us about what Bernie Sanders could be like as president. So did you talk to Bernie Sanders about this time in his life? No. Sanders, in fact, refused to have any contact with us on this story. He's certainly been available on some other stories, but he was not willing to talk about himself. And that is very much in keeping with his pattern throughout his political career. And when you talk to his friends about why that is, they say part of it is this kind of old left idea that it's not about the people, it's about the policy and you don't get into personalities because that's not what really changes things. But part of it is also just a personal thing where uh, Sanders is uncomfortable talking about about his past. In 1968, after graduating from the University of Chicago, Sanders moved to Vermont. He wanted to be part of the broader back to the land movement. It was kind of a hippie thing. This was a chance to kind of put his principles in motion and also kind of get out of the rat race and reject the mainstream culture and all of that. He didn't have a clear career path. He was more interested in being an activist. So he joined a fledgling political party called Liberty Union. They would sometimes run candidates in races, usually more to make a political point than anything else. It was really kind of a debate society more than anything else. A lot of leftists who came together and argued the various uh, strands of their ideology. And he was part of that. And he was at one of their meetings one day uh, when they were casting around for uh, who could run for Senate, U.S. Senate, not state Senate. They were just looking around this room and be like, maybe maybe one of us should run. Yeah. And not a lot of them wanted to. In fact, no one wanted to. And Bernie Sanders said, not only will he run, but he would like to win. He didn't come anywhere close, and he ended up running again and again and again. How much did he lose by? Oh, he got about 2% of the vote. <laughs> uh, and he ran for Senate and then for governor and then for Senate again and governor. And he ran. A, a, Whoa, all these times? Senate, then governor, and then Senate, then governor? All throughout the 1970s, he ran again and again for governor and senator and never got more than 5 or 6% of the vote. Always was kind of a fringe candidate to the extent that he actually talked about being perceived as a joke. Some of his friends sat him down in 1980 and they said, you know, we know you want to be senator or governor, but that's clearly not happening. How about another idea? 
run for mayor of Burlington. And the theory was that somebody had analyzed the voting records from when he'd run for these statewide offices. And they said, you did terribly everywhere except in a couple of neighborhoods in Burlington where a lot of college professors and students and kind of radical people lived and you did decently well there. You could actually maybe win there. So they tried to persuade him. These friends gathered in a laundry room at the housing project with Bernie Sanders on Halloween night of 1980 and they said, Here's the argument. If you want to really do politics, this is how you can actually get somewhere. And what was Sanders' first reaction to that? No, I want <laughs> nothing to do with this. He had Why no, not? He if had, he wanted to hold political office. He had no interest in local issues. He had no interest in the kind of office where you would have to you know, fill the potholes and make sure the electricity rates were reasonable and get the uh, trash collected on time and all of that. That was not he, – he thought big. He thought at this sort of systematic level. He wanted to change the American way of governing and he didn't see that being a mayor was a path toward that. And his friends tried to persuade him that it was, that that is the base level of politics. And that's where people's daily lives are truly affected. And that's where you can make a difference. And he said, well, I don't know anything about this stuff. And they said, well, a bunch of us do. And, and you can kind of learn it. And, and it won't be a problem, but you can actually get some votes. And by this was an all night meeting in the laundry room. And by around dawn, they had persuaded him. And he said, all right, I'll do it. And how does that campaign go? And how does he present himself in this campaign? He presented himself very much as he was, someone who was not polished, not a standard politician, not a member of a political party. Uh, he was running uh, with what was then uh, becoming kind of a progressive coalition in Burlington of uh, low-income people, housing project tenants, students, professors, uh, newcomers from Boston, New York and other places. And he put together this coalition and he said, look, I'm here to create systematic change, but I'm also going to get the basics taken care of. And this was a city that was beginning to undergo gentrification. Uh, and he said, look, we need to, to look out for the poor and for people who are going to lose their homes and that kind of thing. And it was a persuasive message, but it was also uh, the luck of math because what happened was you had an entrenched democratic machine that had run the city for many years that was perceived as being fairly corrupt. You had a uh, what was then liberal Republican uh, kind of old North uh, New England uh, faction uh, that was not a huge factor but would take some votes. And then you had Bernie representing this new crowd in town. And he kind of slipped through. And by slipped through, I mean he won by 10 votes. Mayor Sanders got a lot of attention recently, not only with his 10-vote victory out of about 9,500 votes cast, but mostly because he is a socialist. And everybody reading that article said, my goodness, how did this happen in good old conservative Vermont? How do you respond? Well, in Vermont, being conservative is different perhaps than being conservative elsewhere in the country. Also, what I think most people don't know is Vermont happens to be one of the very poorest states in the country. And although we're a little bit better off in Burlington, we still have enormous economic problems. Bernie Sanders uh, from the start had this tremendous learning curve and it was exacerbated by the fact that the Democrats, the Republicans, the business leaders, basically all of the powers that were in Burlington, Vermont, ganged up to try to prevent him from 
essentially ruling. And mm, so they- Because they didn't they, like that he was an outsider. And a socialist and someone who couldn't be trusted and so on. And so they rejected all of his appointees. They wouldn't allow him access to some of the information that he needed. He had to set up almost a shadow government of friends and colleagues uh, who would meet on Sunday nights at somebody's house to try to prepare a budget, to try to analyze what was uh, wrong with the city's spending and so on. And that was all kind of done by subterfuge on the outside, even though he was the sitting mayor. Uh, so for the, his first year in office, it was really rough. But he was able to persuade voters that if they wanted him to do all these things he promised to do, he, they needed to elect more council members of his stripe so that he would be able to finally use the authority of the mayoralty. So the fact that Sanders was elected mayor actually ended up making other parts of the Burlington city government more radical too. Yes. But really what allowed Bernie Sanders finally to make an imprint on Burlington and get things done was something that at first glance looks like it's not really in character. He started building bridges and forming coalitions with people very much unlike himself, namely Republicans. Mm. And he created this alliance with the Republicans against the sort of entrenched democratic machine that ran the city. And what were some of his accomplishments in that first term? Well, he had won that election in good part because he'd won the endorsement of the city's police union. And he did that by promising the police officers the raise that the existing political machine had denied them. Uh, so he came through on that. He also won the office by uh, promising to uh, take the city's waterfront along Lake Champlain and open it up for the public rather than for high-end housing. And he began a series of negotiations that led to a compromise where there was luxury housing built, but there was also a waterfront park that was created. And, and people really like that. People really like that. A lot of people on the uh, political ends of, of the spectrum did not like that. So especially some of his fellow leftists did not like that because they didn't want any luxury housing. And uh, there were people on the other end who said, this is private property. We want to do whatever's going to have the highest return and there's no God-given right to have a public park there. Uh, so he drove a truck right down the middle between those positions and used uh, the fact that he was going to allow this luxury housing to be built to get the public park done as well. And so there was a kind of pragmatism to his socialism uh, that was surprising to a lot of people who he'd spent the 70s uh, out in the wilderness with. Ultimately, how long was his tenure as mayor of Burlington? He was elected four times, so he spent uh, basically the entire 1980s as mayor of Burlington. But for those last few years, he was already casting his eye to the next move and had actually run for Congress and lost and then ran for Congress and won. And so beginning in 1990, he served in the House. And then he was done with this whole mayor business. <laughs> he was done with it, although he, you know, he, is a, he has learned to work his constituency. And so he's back in Burlington quite frequently. Uh, he's, he's a regular on the town hall circuit in Vermont. Uh, so that's really always been his strength is going out and speaking to groups. And uh, he's given essentially the same stump speech for 30, 40 years. In fact, many of the people who worked with him back in the 1970s say he has changed only a few words of the speech through all those decades. And that speech failed and failed and failed. And then 
everything aligned where the country was ready for that kind of a message, and suddenly the same speech that had failed him so often was working. From hearing about what Bernie Sanders was like as mayor of Burlington, what do you think that says about what he would be like as a president? I think a lot of people would be surprised to see that the one time that he was a manager, the one time that he actually governed, he had a record of creating surprising alliances. Uh, and, And the Burlington experience suggests that a President Sanders would be considerably less radical than a lot of his rhetoric may imply. Uh, This is someone who consciously went out and fairly succeeded at creating uh, what you'd have to call Reagan-Sanders voters in the 1980s, just as he now wants very much to pick off the Obama-Trump voters who he sees as the key to a democratic victory. And so although he does a lot of care and feeding of his leftist base in across the country, uh, and, and a lot of his ideas are indeed socialist. If you look at how he actually governed, it was a classic, uh, much more centrist kind of approach uh, that was very much about coalition building rather than saying this is the right way as, as he seems to in his speeches. Mark Fisher is a senior editor at The Post. I had covered North Korea previously from 2004 and I'd been to North Korea a bunch of times and it seemed to me then like it was just on the brink of total collapse and like economic collapse, if not regime collapse. Anna Fifield is the Beijing bureau chief for The Washington Post. And the first time I returned in 2014 after six years away, I was really blown away by how Pyongyang, the showcase capital, but the capital still all the same, was looking so much better. It looked much richer. People seemed to be more leisurely. And it it looked like life was improving. And I wanted to try and figure out how. Like, how had Kim Jong-un managed to defy all the expectations to not only stay in power, but how had he managed to make it look like North Korea was getting a better place to live? Anna just published a new book. The Great Successor, The Divinely Perfect Destiny of Brilliant Comrade Kim Jong-un. It examines the life of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, who was in his late 20s when he succeeded his father. Seven and a half years later, here he is. He is strong and confident and doesn't show any signs of going anywhere. So for Kim Jong-un growing up, what was the world that he lived in? He had this very abnormal childhood. So he was the progeny of one of several of Kim Jong-il's wives or partners. And all of these families were kept entirely separate. So Kim Jong-un and his older brother and younger sister, they lived on this palatial compound together entirely separately from Kim Jong-il's other children and other families. 
So they had, like, no friends. They didn't go to school. They had tutors who came in. They had all these riches, so many imported food and imported toys and all these things that ordinary North Koreans did not have. It sounds like a very princely life. It was an incredibly decadent princely life, but also so dysfunctional. Like, he was treated like a little prince. He could do no wrong from the earliest age. So there was really no way for him to grow up normal in this environment. And then when he gets a little bit older, he actually goes to school in Switzerland, which I find so shocking just because North Korea is such a closed place that the idea that they're sending off this kid to 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 school in Europe. What what was that like for him? That was his first real foray into the outside world. He'd been to uh, Europe and to Japan on vacation before, but he'd never actually lived anywhere outside the royal court in North Korea. But the regime had decided that the children should go abroad. So his older half-brother, Kim Jong-nam, had gone to Geneva, and Kim Jong-un and his siblings went to Bern, the capital of Switzerland. And so this was a way that they could live a relatively normal life. So he went to a private school first and then a public school, a German-speaking school. And he tried to pretend just to be a normal kind of Korean child, a kid of diplomats there. Um, and so he went, yeah, went to normal school. He played a lot of basketball. He didn't really like doing his homework. Um, but that was a way to kind of maybe let off some of the pressure. And while he was there, he was living with his aunt and uncle. And you tracked them down and talked to them. What did they say about this period in his life? They were his guardians in Switzerland, and while he called them the Korean word for aunt, emo, that, you know, his friends did not know that that was not mom in Korean, so they pretended to be his parents. They uh, went to great pains to kind of describe what a normal child he was, that he, you know, enjoyed playing basketball, playing with planes and trains, and he had playdates and birthday parties, and they were really trying to impress upon me the fact that he was not a psychopathic child or anything, but that he was normal. And it was quite strange that they, you know, they defected from the regime more than 20 years ago now, but they were still very faithful towards him and wanted me to think well of him. Um, And so I was watching Korean TV with them at their house and a shot came on where Kim Jong-un had fired a missile and his uncle said, they never say anything good about him. So Kim Jong-un was in his late 20s when he succeeded his father. And I remember when, when that first happened that he was sort of painted as very young, very inexperienced, and sort of a, a dilettante that he probably wouldn't have uh, a good sense about how to rule the country or couldn't be considered a serious leader. What did he do to demonstrate his power and his sense of seriousness? There was so much doubt that he could do it because, you know, there are people serving in that regime who served his grandfather, people who have been in that regime longer than he's been alive. And in this very hierarchical system, it seemed hard to believe that they would tolerate this young upstart coming in and and leading the place. But he was uh, very kind of determined from the outset and very calculating in the way he approached uh, his job. So he used all of this knowledge, institutional knowledge, all these people who had been serving the regime for so long to help consolidate his power and to get his grip on the regime. And then once these people had served their purpose, he got rid of them. So we saw many purges or executions of people at the very top of the regime Hmm. because while they were very helpful to 
him. Uh, they also were powerful and could potentially pose some kind of threat to him. So he's clearly not a nice guy, but he's very tactical in the way he approached it. And if you're a, like, a totalitarian dictator wanting to stay in power, it does make perfect sense to dispatch with your rivals. But one of the really interesting things that he has done is to try to create a new kind of elite that is just loyal to him and that is living a relatively good life in uh, in Pyongyang, sometimes called Pyonghattan, uh, by the elites who live there. Because like, like Manhattan? Like Manhattan, yeah. And so the idea is that he is creating sort of a, a rarefied life for them too. Yeah, so these 20-somethings, 30-somethings, people his same age, their lives have gotten so much better under him. They, there's so much more money sloshing around. It's very corrupt. But also, you know, if you're a 20-something with money in Pyongyang these days, you can go to a yoga class. You know, you can get your teeth fixed or, you know, double eyelid surgery, which is very popular in Asia. Like all of these trappings of wealth and kind of conspicuous consumption that you would see in Seoul or in Beijing, you can also find amongst the elites in Pyongyang these days. And that's a really big change. One of the unknown stories that you reveal in your book is about the role that various women in Kim Jong-un's life played in his upbringing and in who he has become today. What got you interested in that? And what did you learn from the people you talked to about these women in his family? I think this is a really under-recognized aspect of Kim Jong-un's life because these women have had a really important influence on him and play a pivotal role in the regime. And in fact, I think it was his mother that is responsible for him getting the top job in the first place. It's often thought that the oldest son of Kim Jong-il, his name was Kim Jong-nam, that he fell out of favor because he was caught in very embarrassing fashion like trying to sneak into Japan to go to Disneyland. But I think it was, in fact, the influence of the mothers that decided who became the successor because Kim Jong-nam's mother had a kind of mental breakdown when he was three years old and she went to Moscow and basically lived there for the rest of her life. She was out of the circles of influence in Pyongyang, whereas Kim Jong-un's mother... She was very active. She had the longest relationship with Kim Jong-il there. And she was very ambitious. So she was agitating for one of her two sons to become the leader from the very beginning. So she would call her sons the little generals. She made sure that they went to the west point of North Korea so that they could stake a claim to be the true, you know, legitimate heirs to this regime. So I think she was very influential. And she actually died in 2004. And that was, you know, seemed to have been a, a big event in Kim Jong-un's life. How about his sister and his wife? They also seem to play a big role in who he is. Yeah, they are both two very important figures to him. And they have two distinct roles. So his younger sister, Kim Yo-jong, she uh, came to South Korea and, you know, was his first envoy into the outside world. But she's very much working for him. She can be seen all the time. You know, at the summits, she's the one who pulls the Mont Blanc pen out of her handbag and gives it to him to sign the documents. You know, she is his, like, executive assistant, you know, making sure everything goes smoothly. And she's really there to support her brother with whatever he needs. Whereas his wife, who is about the same age, you know, she is there to humanize him. I mean, he is this 
tyrant man who's quite fierce in many ways. And she came along to be kind of like the Kate Middleton of North Korea. You know, <laughs> she's this glamorous woman who loops her arm through his when they're out walking, which is very unusual in conservative North Korea. She was a famous singer in a, a North Korean band. So uh, every North Korean would have recognized her when she became the first lady. So she is this like modern young face of North Korea, I think, to give the people a sense of modernity and that the regime is evolving and, you know, is keeping up with the modern era. Between the times that you you went to North Korea in, I think it was 2004, and more recently, you've noticed some of that economic growth that has come about in the last few years and the fact that Pyongyang in particular looks completely different. What are the things you noticed or the ways that North Korea has changed? There is this kind of new Pyongyang where people can go out and have a good time and where it's not something that needs to be um, secret anymore. So, for example, I went to a German beer hall in Pyongyang that was completely packed with locals, with North Koreans who oh. were in there. There's craft beer, six different types on tap. Everybody's eating German sausages and having a good time, and it could easily have been South Korea. And the prices were South Korean prices, too. There was even a $48 steak on the menu, though most people were having the German sausages. Uh, so that's like a sign of this kind of consumer culture that has developed in North Korea. But also just even the buildings, place of high rises in North Korea, which look great when you're standing on the riverbanks on a sunny day. But when you get closer to them, you see that this is actually part of the Potemkin village because the tiles are falling off. And I actually went into one of these apartments and there's no electricity to run the elevators. So if you live on the 20th floor, you have to walk up the stairs. So, so Yeah. And I've also heard that on the top floors that there's no running water because there's not enough electricity to pump the water up there. So even though they look impressive, and if you live on the third floor, for example, that maybe it's a nice way to live, uh, you know, it's still not completely as it seems. Would you like to say something to the press? I think that for regular Americans, they've actually seen a lot more of Kim Jong-un in the last few years than from his father because because of these two summits that he's had with President Trump. Today, uh, we had a historic meeting and decided to leave the past behind, and we are about to sign a historic document. The world will see a major change. I would like to express my gratitude to President Trump to make this meeting happen. Thank you. Why do you think Kim Jong-un has had these summits and how is that changing how North Korea and the U.S. deal with each other? We have seen so much more of Kim Jong-un and not just at the summits. Like, he is so different from his father, who was this really reclusive oddball, who in 17 years in power, he spoke in public only once. And then it was one single sentence. Whereas Kim Jong-un is out and about giving speeches, talking to people all the time. And those people now include leaders of world powers. 
Uh, and this, I think, is a very natural progression for him. He focused in his first years on developing a credible nuclear program, which served his purposes in domestically. It's uh, a way to placate maybe the hardliners in the military who might have misgivings about this young leader. It's a way to bolster national pride amongst the general population and also a way to fend off any threat from the U.S., But now having developed his nuclear program to a level where it's really clear that he could use it if he wanted to, he's turning to the economy. He needs to grow North Korea's economy if he's going to continue to keep people feeling like their lives are getting better under him. So that's where Donald Trump comes in. I just received a beautiful letter from Kim Jong-un. I I can't show you the letter, obviously, but it was a very personal, very warm, very nice letter. I appreciate it. And I'll say it again. I think that North Korea has tremendous potential, and he'll be there. I think that North Korea, under his leadership, but North Korea, because of what it represents, the people are great, the land is great, the location is incredible between Russia, China, and South Korea. I think North Korea has tremendous potential, and the one that feels that more than anybody is Kim Jong-un. He gets it. He cannot grow the economy while these sanctions are still in place and while they continue to cripple North Korea economically. So he's really now focused on getting these sanctions off, being able to trade, being able to earn money from the outside world again. And, you know, kind of best case scenario, I'm sure he would like some uh, foreign investment, no strings attached, of course, (laughs) in North Korea so he can help, uh, you know, grow the economy. Anna Fifield is the Beijing bureau chief for The Washington Post. Her new book is called The Great Successor, The Divinely Perfect Destiny of Brilliant Comrade Kim Jong-un. Post Reports is sponsored by The Asset Podcast. Produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. Listen to the story of the role of a hostile foreign government in the election of Donald Trump to President of the United States. Download and listen today. The context behind what's happening on the streets in Hong Kong today is... The fact that Beijing has slowly been tightening and tightening its grip around Hong Kong, which was promised uh, a pretty large degree of autonomy, actually, when it was handed over from the British back to China in 1997. Shibani Matani is the Post Bureau Chief in Hong Kong, where tens of thousands of people protested this week. The demonstration started because of a controversial piece of legislation. Hong Kong is trying to push through an extradition bill And this bill would basically mean that Hong Kong could send fugitives back to anywhere on the world, uh, even a place that they don't have a formal extradition treaty with. And why that's really significant is because it does mean now that if that bill passes, Hong Kong could send fugitives back to mainland China, where they would be tried under the Chinese legal system. We saw really uh, huge, huge numbers turn out on a, on a protest on Sunday. Organizers said that it was 1.1 million people who showed up, which would be historic numbers for Hong Kong. 
Yesterday, people were sitting on the streets, they blocked the building, it was extremely organized. It was actually largely sort of peaceful and police were very restrained until a point in the afternoon when things got really heated and police decided to basically started tear gassing people. There was so much tear gas canisters, I think 150 in all. A lot of the protesters didn't want to share their names with us. They were much more cagey about talking. I think there's a growing concern here that as Beijing tightens its grip over Hong Kong, it's also exporting various methods of, of surveillance that it's used in, in crackdowns or, or operations against dissidents within mainland China itself. One of the things that we, we saw them do yesterday, too, was buy um, cards for the, for the subway, the MTR here in Hong Kong, you know, with, with cash, like these little like pay-as-you-go cards, rather than using the, the sort of prepaid cards, which could be linked to their identities or could be easily tracked. You know, even though protesters had largely cleared out, the demonstrators, I think, are, are, are regrouping. They're sort of figuring out their, their strategy and, and what's next. And um, some of the main groups have called for them to gather once again on, on Sunday. So I, I, I really don't think that this is a, a, a movement or, or momentum that's going to die down anytime soon. Shibani Matani is the Hong Kong bureau chief for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 